Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring a discussion between moderator Pat Bolland with Adam Kramer, portfolio manager, and Scott Menzi, institutional portfolio manager. Adam manages Fidelity Tactical High Income Fund, a diversified income solution that can offer the potential for enhanced yield while employing active asset allocation to take advantage of market opportunities. Adam and Scott share how the fund is currently positioned, how the positioning has actively shifted over time, and where they see these challenging markets going. With Pat, Adam and Scott also field questions from the live audience. And please note, as this discussion initially took place at a live event, there were a few slides displayed to the in-person audience. Today's podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you guys here. Great to be here. Adam, we're gonna start with you. Tactical high income, describe the fund. All right, this fund has been around since 2014. Uh, it's a flexible mandate to invest across the full spectrum of income-oriented asset classes, so treasury bonds on one end, dividend-paying stocks on the other, and everything in between. That includes high-yield bonds, floating-rate debt, emerging market debt, preferred stocks, REITs, everything, basically everything. Uh, mostly a US-centric fund. There's no benchmark, but we're trying to give an alternative to traditional balance funds. So we're trying to provide you with a similar um, a risk profile uh, but with better risk-adjusted returns. And over the life of the fund, we've, uh, you know, the, the numbers speak for themselves on that. Who is it best suited for, you think? If there's no benchmark, who should use this fund? Well, I think this is for everybody. This is a, a set-it-and-forget-it compounder. We're doing the asset allocation decisions for you in many different asset classes that, you know, our 25 analysts, $100 billion high-yield alternatives group specializes in. Uh, but it's also a tool. Um, so if, you're, if you want to have equity sensitivity, this fund does have some equities. We'll talk about the parameters. It's less going to have less equity sensitivity, so you can have your foot in the water as well. Uh, but also, it's a way to enhance your credit exposure, also your duration exposure too. Uh, this is a lower duration uh, product than typical investment grade bond funds or even high yield funds. So really at the end of the day, no matter where we are in the cycle, early cycle, late, uh, middle cycle, late cycle recession, this fund works in each one of those cycles. We'll, we'll explain to you why, because we're trying to find those opportunities with the flexibility that we have to find those areas where you're getting a really attractive coupon where there's too much bad news priced in. Okay, talk to me about your team, because your team's pretty impressive, Scott included, but uh, Ford O'Neill and Ramona Prasad. 
Yeah, so um, one of the unique features of this team is that with these four portfolio managers, myself, Scott, uh, uh, Ramon, and Ford, you basically have that full spectrum uh, of, of income-oriented asset classes covered from a bottom-up perspective. So for example, myself, I'm the lead manager, so what that means is that it's a fiduci my fiduciary responsibility to determine what goes into the fund and how we're positioned, and I use all my co-managers as an input with regards to um, you know, whether or not we're positioned properly, what their best ideas are. In addition to this, I also am an asset allocator uh, for all the strategic funds at Fidelity, all the strategic bond funds, the strategic dividend income fund, which is only equity income funds, and real return funds as well. I do that with Ford O'Neill. So our asset allocation decisions in those funds rhyme with what we're doing in this fund. So that's why it's very synergistic. I'm also a bottom-up security software. I manage all the convertible bond funds at Fidelity. I manage all the preferred stock funds at Fidelity. I'm a high-yield uh, investor as well. I've been in the high-yield and alternatives group for 22 years. I started as a summer intern in that group in 1999. I manage high-yield bond funds, loan funds for institutional clients. And uh, we have our best ideas. Ford O'Neill, he's a bottom-up security selector, one of the largest investment-grade bond funds in the United States, the total bond fund. He also works with Jeff Moore. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have his best ideas in the fund, his expertise on anything linked to investment-grade. Scott is an expert on all things credits. You'll hear about his expertise today. And Ramona Persaud, who you might know, an equity income investor, one of the, uh, one of the best in the country, I think, works with us on some of the other funds. We know what her best ideas are, what her thoughts are. She's very value-focused. And she offers her best ideas. So when you put all four of us together, you have really unique conversations, real differentiator, and then you come out of it not only with an asset allocation decision, but also best ideas. The positions in this fund rhyme with our best ideas in the other funds. You, you know, I've never asked you this, but how often do you actually get together? Is it is it monthly? Is it daily? Is it weekly? If you look at our calendar, we have we have meetings on the calendar um, every single day with different parts of Fidelity. So we're using all the inputs at Fidelity. Our asset allocation and research team, our, our economics expertise, our sector specialists. Um, we're, meeting, we're meeting daily, basically, multiple times daily. And we have these repetitive meetings. We're constantly just following this never-ending story. Where are we in the economy? What's our best ideas? And where is the bad news priced in? And we're just putting together, taking all the inputs from Fidelity, putting together a mosaic, and uh, then we, we, we base that as our starting point for where how to position the portfolio. Okay, let's get to the nitty gritty because this is a multi-asset fund. Scott, you have a really neat chart on asset class performance. There we go. Tell us what we're looking at first off and then I'll ask you why you do it differently. Sure, so it's great to see everybody here and you know, what we're looking at on this chart is basically the full spectrum of income-oriented asset classes that Adam laid out and their calendar year returns. And the green is the best, the purple is the worst. And what you'll see is they change positions every year. And what, what is really unique about this is the dispersion at the bottom, right? So it can be super wide. So in 2009, it was like 52%. Sometimes it can be in the high single digits. But ultimately, what we think is that traditional 50-50 investors, single asset class investors, they're missing out on this dispersion. And that's what we're really trying to capture. Okay, walk me through this in a little bit more detail, if you don't mind. Let's go back to 2008 as an example, because pretty good one there, where you had a positive return out of investment-grade bonds of 5.2%, correct? Yep. And you, you're telling us to look at the minus 37 and the net 42. Correct. And year-to-date, we're looking at floating rate debt is down 1% and 19% for emerging markets debt. 
Right. Not a good year this year. Well, you're right. There, it's not a good. It hasn't been a great year for risk assets, generally speaking, or even safety assets if we think about investment grade bonds. But I think what we get excited about, and again, we're we're getting closer to the end of the year. But historically, there's always been some positive return in one of these markets, and that's because something bad is ultimately too too much bad news gets priced into some asset classes, and the one that you know gets that bad news and then we don't see it happen. That's the one that usually wins the next time around, which is why high yield bonds won in 2009 because everybody was predicting the end of the world. Um, in 2008, financial markets kind of stabilized, and high yield bonds were the outperformer. And this year, you know, what's really been the story has been duration risk, and that's no surprise that floating rate loans have been the top performing asset class, albeit down 1.1%. But what we get excited about is there's always opportunity when we think about this portfolio. Those funds that maybe are focused on single asset classes are you know, working within one asset class to find something that might be not as overvalued or, or have a little bit relative value. But there's always parts of, these, of all of these markets where there's something that's attractively priced and there's going to be an opportunity for the future. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find those asset classes and those securities where there's too much bad news priced in. But if you look at asset performance, this is in the public domain. Anybody can look at these numbers and see how they work. How do you guys do it differently? Sure. So, yeah, exactly. It's, everybody can see this information. What we do that's a little bit unique in our portfolio is that if you look at other funds that kind of have this mandate of, of, of tactically allocating to different asset classes, what they typically do is they're going to be doing it through what I'll call a sleeved approach. So say uh, we want to buy high yield bonds. We would send a portion of our portfolio to a high yield bond manager like Harley Lank, who runs our American High Yield Fund. He would then invest it in a basket of securities that would try to beat the broader high yield index. And that's fine. That gives you the asset allocation impact. And hopefully, you know, if, if Harley's doing his job, which he's done a great job of, we'll beat that index by a couple hundred basis points, hopefully. What we do differently is if we like high yield, instead of sending that money to a manager, Adam, myself, the rest of the team, we'll pick a basket of high yield bonds that we think are really attractive. And you know, what that does, it allows us to avoid the areas of the high yield market that maybe aren't as attractively priced, really focus on our research team's best ideas. So Adam mentioned in the high income and alternatives group, we've got 20 plus uh, high yield analysts. So finding their best ideas and building our asset allocation from a bottom up perspective with a basket of securities so that we can get that premium yield that everybody's looking for, better downside protection and doing it through the basket, we can move and change our asset allocation much quicker than we, if we were doing it with the sleeve the program. You know, you mentioned downside protection. Capital preservation is something you haven't mentioned yet. Is that a priority? Or? Definitely. You know, we've got a number of tests that we put the portfolio through on a day-to-day -day basis. And what we're trying to do is balance the amount of income to the amount of risk we're taking in the bond and equity markets. And what we've found, if we can do that effectively, we call it our scenario analysis. And if we look at that, you know, we can get a very, what I'll call asymmetric risk reward profile. So minimal downside and equity-like upside. And we're looking at that on a day-to-day -day basis and basically analyzing what's the yield of the portfolio versus the duration and the equity sensitivity. Okay, but Adam, when you look at this, I'm looking at seven different assets overall. How do you 
risk manage in that kind of environment? What are your priorities? Yeah, well, first of all, just to follow up on, on what Scott was said, this is the raison d'etre of the fund. This is what makes this fund really unique because we're focusing on those areas that you're referring to, and we'll tell you how. So there, I like to think of the, the, pro, the process as very repeatable and duplicable no matter where we are in the cycle here, and I like to think of it as, as a Venn diagram. If you remember from elementary school, three oh. circles connected, you want to be in the middle of the Venn diagram. So basically we're looking for, you know, that that bed just right if, if we think about Goldilocks, like that comfortable bed or the porridge just right. Think about it this way. So at any given points uh, in, in the uh, cycle, we can have anywhere between 30 and 60% in stocks. So that's our limitations. That's, that sort of gives us that flexibility to really preserve capital relative to traditional 60-40, 50-50 balance funds. Uh, and that's what's helped us uh, you know, with that risk-adjusted return through the full cycles. Mm. And, and we've been at the lower ends on the equity side, and we'll talk about that. Um, we've been at the 30%-ish type area. Um, historically, this fund is average in the 40s, but we, we've been using that tool. We'll talk about that shortly. What that means is that the fund can have between 40 and 70% in fixed income, mm. and the mix of that fixed income, which could be any of these over here, is determined by some of our other tests that we have in. One of which is that um, since we don't have a benchmark, we do want to track what a traditional 50-50 fund would have. If we think about the U.S investment grade bond market having a duration, an interest rate duration, treasury bonds, investment grade corporates of around three and a half percent. We'll take 50% of that. So our benchmark, our bogey would be one point, uh, sorry, with just the 6.4%, 3.2% would be 50% of that. We can't be more than, more or less than one and a half years, overweight or underweight, 50% of the Barclays aggregate index duration. So that limits how little or how few or how, how many investment grade securities we can have as well. Going into this year, we were underweight duration, and now our playbook is that, you know, six months after the Federal Reserve starts to increase, you want to start, want to sort of be neutral duration, and that's basically how we've been trending. What that means is that if we do have that risk bucket, that, we, that wide risk bucket, we're able to look for those areas that are down 18, 19, 20%, mm. where you're collecting a 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% coupon, where you're already pricing in a recession spread. If the bad news takes place, then um, we collect a coupon, we get that spread tightening. That's why you have so many reds and greens together, because the market readjusts. Mm. And if the bad news does occur, then at least we're in that asset class where we had that cushion for error. We also have a minimum yield target. We always want to offer the fund holders um, a, a yield that's greater than what you get in the U.S. investment grade bond market. Um, so we're... What, what is that currently, for instance? Uh, we're talking about uh, the, it's around, what, 4 4.5% or so. So we're okay, sort of... So decent. Our SEC yield in the United States would be closer to 5%. Our current yield is higher than that. And then, uh, um, then we also have that, we want to make sure that we have that proper matching of income to the amount of risk we're taking on. That's the key. So no matter where we are in the cycle, we'll follow those rules. The portfolio is going to look different no matter where we are. But we're always going to make sure that we have a high enough level of current income to really dampen the blow in a down market. So think about you know, a 5% coupon versus a three-year duration. That's enough to offset 150 or so more of interest rate increases or credit spread increases. If you compare that to a 30 delta, the yield's higher than what you'd, what you'd lose on a principle of the stocks were to go down 10%. So the, the end result is that we're able to, to deliver um, or try to deliver through a full cycle uh, an equity-like return with lower volatility. 
but even though some of these asset classes are still going down, really have that income to dampen the blow and set us up, set us up for the uh, for the for the up cycles. So it's not your traditional 60/40, is what you're saying. You have a heck of a lot more flexibility. You started off by talking about Venn diagrams, and I did have to go back to grade eight and kind of remember what they look like. Those three circles. What are those three circles? You didn't lay out what they okay. were. Well, the first one you is, want to be in the yeah, sweet spot in the middle, for right? sure. So the first one is the um, is these categories that I spoke to you about. How much of each asset class can we have? Right. Those yield targets, etc. The duration, overweight, underweight. That's uh, the second target is making sure that in a stress scenario, if the underlying stocks of this portfolio were to go up or down 10 percent, and if interest rates or credit spreads were to move up the first 100 basis points compared to our profile, and we collect our coupon for a full 12 months, four different scenarios, three of the four have to be positive. That third scenario is tough for many balanced funds or traditional single asset class funds to, to get positive. That third scenario is when stocks go down 10% and interest rates um, move in our favors. So in other words, bonds move higher. It's, most funds have too much equity. It's that third scenario that we want to have positive. When it all comes down to it, when we try to focus on having that third scenario positive, that's what I think the difference maker has been. That's the second scenario. And then the third scenario is relative to a traditional 50-50 benchmark, 50% S&P 500, 50% uh, Barclays Aggregate Index, the U.S. investment grade bond market. We give ourselves a, uh, we have a very detailed risk team um, that forecasts our risk. And if we think about tracking error, how, how far away we are from a traditional 50-50 benchmark, we give ourselves a very wide range. It's around 2 to 6% tracking error who, for whoever is familiar with those metrics. And if we think about a forecasted beta relative to a traditional 50-50 balance fund, um, we give ourselves the option to be 0.75 up and then up to one and a half beta. Now we want to we have that upper end of the beta because after episodic sell-offs, <clears throat> like we're seeing right now, like we saw in 2020, the forecasted risk reports will show that things are much more riskier after the sell-off. We, we give ourselves a lot of that flexibility to sort of run into the fire after these sell-offs occur, and that's where we're able to really take advantage of that flexibility, and that's what makes this fund different from other, other funds as well. Okay, you touched on it briefly. You're focused on United States. Do you have worldwide domain, or is it mostly the states? Yeah. We, how many securities are we talking about? Yeah, we do have the ability to uh, to go worldwide. So historically, this fund has been around 90% U.S. centric. But if you look at the holdings in the fund, being a Canadian, I, I I love looking at Canadian preferreds and Canadian stocks. So you'll see a bunch of those in there as well. Uh, we're able to buy um, you know uh, any of these securities in any other countries. Uh, we've we've owned European stocks. We've and uh, uh, South Korean, Japanese stocks. Just a, only really we look at that when there's a real episodic sell-off where there's a real spread differentiator. Um, and uh, this fund will have anywhere between 100 to 450 positions at any given point in time. And like Scott was saying, but with myself and, and the portfolio that I built, my best ideas and you know seven or eight different asset classes, all my sub-managers and my other asset allocation funds, I know what their top ideas are. For example, I know what the REIT best ideas are, the MLP, Master Limited Partnership best ideas are. Um, and I know what Ford O'Neill's best investment grade ideas are, Ramona's. It, all you really need is 10, you know, 8, eight, eight to 15 uh, best ideas in each asset class to put together a nice portfolio. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So this is another cool chart. And Scott, you get to do this one because uh, I call this the layer cake, and I've seen it a couple of times. But I, I can't get over how much detail you get into here. How tactical has the fund been? 
Well, and, and explain the chart first. Sure. So what we're looking at here is the asset allocation history of this portfolio since we launched it back in 2014. And uh, as you said, Pat, a lot of our competitors, when you look at their asset allocation charts, will look more like layer cakes. I say this one looks more like a trifle, so a little bit more jumbled up, which I think shows what we're actually doing. And this is really the output of that process, making asset allocation decisions based on what we're seeing in the market from a valuation perspective and based on kind of what we think or where we're going in, in kind of the business cycle. So, you know, the, the bottom is, you can see the, the, the biggest segment is, is equities. And one thing I always like to tell folks is, even though this is, says equities, there are components in here that are outside of your traditional S&P 500 stock. So embedded in here would be some of the international stocks that, that Adam mentioned, yield codes, which are, are energy companies, so pipelines and green energy, which pay dividends. We also have REITs in here. And so you've got a mix of things. So for example, if I look back at you know, 2021, it's, it looks like we're at a high end for equities. We were actually underweight the S&P 500 and overweight things like REITs and yield codes and some international stocks, which we, th offered, we thought offered uh, better value. Now we've reduced all of those positions and we're thinking about uh, something different now. Okay, what's the turnover like? He mentioned 400, up to 450 security. Yeah, so it can be high, no denying it. We've had you know, a couple hundred percent turnover depending on what's going on in the portfolio because you know, if you see changes you know, in the, the risk metrics and the valuations, we have to move around and find the best value. But what we've done as a team, and I think this is something unique that Adam and the rest of us has done as a group, is we've started to engage the treasury uh, at Fidelity to understand where our unrealized gains and losses are. So as we make adjustments to the portfolio, we're trying to minimize the tax burden. So if you look over time, we're probably getting about 90 plus, a little over 90% of the pre-tax return in an after-tax return basis. So this is good for a, you know, a, a tax-free account or, or a taxable account because we're doing that tax management process underneath. So the, the, the turnover, which can be a hindrance to strategies like this, we've kind of limited that because of the way we're doing things now. And I'd like to lead that chart up because I love talking about the layers of the cake. What is the fixed income market pricing in for a drop in interest rates for the fourth quarter of 2023? Well, I don't know the answer to that at the top of my head. It <laughs> uh, might be something that uh, some of the other panelists might, might know, so something to ask them. But what, the way we, we, we try not to make the predictions, we're trying to let the opportunities come away. Because if you go back to that chart over there, that market has a tendency of pricing in uh, risks before the events occur. So what we're always looking at is what is the spread relative of uh, one asset class to the other? One asset class relative to the, to the risk-free rates, one asset class relative to the other. And, you know, we see this every year. That's what's so great about this fund is that no matter where you are in the business cycle, there's always something mispriced and it's always different. Every single, every single year, it's a different narrative. So what we have found uh, is that the market has been pricing in the inflation risk, and now they're starting to price in recession risk. And I've been looking at these spreads, and I'd probably say in, in, in some asset classes, we're probably in the seventh to eighth inning of pricing in uh, the recession risk, and in others, we're maybe in the fourth or fifth. So we're letting that play out. I would think that that's what the narrative is going to be you know, what's the nature of the recession into, into, uh, into 23, and then what happens to spread, what was already pricing it in too much. So we're, we're, we're gravitating, as you can see on this chart, to a better risk reward in credits uh, over equities, 
um, because they, we'll talk about some of the different credit asset classes. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're probably seventh or eighth inning of pricing in, you know, what, what we think a recession would look like. Uh, and we pro forma it for maybe a hundred basis point drop in rates if that were to happen. That would sort of reconcile to where a, a high yield recession spread would be if we assumed a hundred basis point drop. And then there's so many different other asset classes that we could talk about that are sort of along that same path as well. Before we came up on the stage, you mentioned that high yield was one area you were looking at, not necessarily doing anything right now. Is that because of that recession scenario that you're seeing playing out? Well, we're, um, you know, one thing that we like to look at with high yield is we like to look at the spread over Treasury. It's called option adjusted spread, which currently is around 530 to 530 basis points today. But you're getting a um, over six and a half percent yield, uh, current yield, and close to you know over close to 10 percent yield to worst uh, to the first call date. You're in the mid, in the low to mid teens. I think you were saying, Scott, uh, to the third to the three-year call date, you're six percent. So you're getting a you're getting a pretty good absolute coupon now relative to whatever the rate of inflation will be in 12 in 12 months time uh, recession or not um, when i compare the option adjusted spread of the high yield market relative to prior cycles you could make the argument that you could have another 100 to 250 basis points of widening, albeit this is such a better market than it ever was. It's around 55% sub-investment grade of double Bs, very healthy companies relative to the, to the early 2000s. And uh, you know, on a four-year duration, uh, if rates were to move up or spreads widen another 150 basis points, your coupon's covering your principal decline. So it's a lot easier now than it was 12 months ago to come up with a 0% return. And of course, if the bad news doesn't play, take place, um, you're gonna get, you'll have a positive return. When I compare that to the equity risk premium in the S&P 500 or some of the equ other equity indices, I don't feel as if there's as good a risk reward right now. If you look at the chart over cycles, that spread of the option adjusted spread in the high yield market compared to the equity risk premium has been moving higher and higher. And that's why I keep on thinking that it's in the seventh, eighth inning of pricing in whatever outcome is the market's worried about relative to the invest to the, to the equity market. But I'm also seeing a lot of opportunities now in the investment grade market too. I mean, four and a half percent on a two-year. Um, Ford O'Neill and I are talking about adding investment grade corporates. Um, you're, you're able to buy blue chip companies, you know, four, five, six percent yields for two, three years. It's starting to get really interesting. Mm. Uh, you talked about the income slash equity holdings range in terms of percentage. What about cash? In, at any given time, what percentage of cash is in the portfolio and how much cash do you have today? Well, yeah, so historically, you know, our max is 20%. And you can see there's some periods in 2016, 2017 that we hit those numbers. I would say that's that gray area. Exactly. The so the gray area on the yeah. top would be cash, right? I think, you know, that's a unique situation when we would do that where, you know, uh, and that was certainly a unique situation in 2016, 2017 with the energy unwind and everything really selling off. I think we like to have a little bit of cash on hand um, just to, you know, if, if opportunities arise, but I wouldn't anticipate us being more in kind of the mid to high single digit range from a cash percentage on an ongoing basis rather than at that, you know, really using that 20% as a lever. You can see we've done it a couple times, but more recently, you know, we've been using, uh, uh, treasuries more as our risk-off bucket, and you know we've had a mixed result there. I think um, we've, there's been some lesson learn lessons learned in 2022 about that, but I wouldn't anticipate cash being a huge component the majority of the time. Given the unique correlation and secular dynamics, will you change your structure limits? 
you know, uh, we, we feel this, this works. I mean, we've been through a number of cycles. I've been, and, and you know, Scott, we've been in, in looking at these markets in, in many different periods. I mean, going back all the way to 99, you know, this matching of the income to the amount of risk we're taking on really, really helps. And we see every single year that, you know, these asset classes take turns. But we always do look and see how we can improve the portfolio. So, you know, in this case over here, it would have been better to be in, in, be in cash um, than being in short data or mid, mid, even mid, mid-year treasuries. So there are certain things that we can definitely improve on in the process. So we're always open to that. Uh, but the gist of this raison d'etre of the fund is, is a real key point that really uh, should, you know, that really does not change. Yeah, one thing I think we, we are considering, we, we're doing some work and, and backtesting on to see how it would help, would be writing covered calls on some of our equity positions. That's a way to protect downside that some other funds do. Uh, we do do it at Fidelity in one of our equity income portfolios. So that's something that potentially we could add to the mix here. Um, but as Adam said, that, that proper matching of income to the amount of duration risk and equity risk has really been tested, I think, when we look at this over time. So we feel pretty comfortable that we've got the tools, even with, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much more flexibility they want to give us. <laughs> that, that's also the question, too. But the right and cover calls is a good point. That is something that um, could definitely uh, lower volatility as well, can allow us to uh, maintain some of the equity holdings and uh, improve the yield as well. So that is something that we'd be looking at. And we have, uh, you know, we have that strategy in place in different areas of fidelity. Uh, I can see by the chart again, we'll go back to that, because the equities in the blue at the bottom definitely falling off and have been for quite a while there. But I'm interested in the yellow streak, which looks to be preferred stocks. And I think, Adam, that's your bailiwick, is it not? Yeah, yeah. I manage uh, preferred stocks at Fidelity. And, um, you know, in the United States, the preferred stock market is mostly uh, the U.S. banks. It's around 65, 70% U.S. banks, uh, utilities, investment-grade utilities, and uh, then a little bit of REITs. And um, what's interesting is that it's all the same investment-grade banks as what you'd find in in the investment-grade bond market in the United States. So the biggest banks, J.P. Morgan, Charles Schwab, J.P. Citigroup, Wells Fargo, et cetera. Uh, the difference between a preferred and the senior bonds is that you're just one level down on the capital structure. And what we found is that over different points in the cycle, that spread that I was telling you about over treasuries uh, will range between 170 plus or minus relative to the investment grade bond mm-hmm. brethren. And uh, at various points in time, duration risk, interest rate risk, credit risk starts to get priced in more or less into the preferred market. And recently, we've seen that the preferred market has been underperforming relative to the, the bank bond market, which is a floating rate market, um, but also uh, underperforming the investment grade bonds uh, of the same banks. But when you look very closely, and we have, we have analysts that are looking at this in our group, a lot of these are fixed rate securities. Maybe the current, the, the strip yield now on them is around six, six and a half percent. But in two years, if, the, if they start to get called at 100 cents on a dollar, mm. two, three years, 100 cents on a dollar, they're trading at 80, 90, 80 to 90 cents on a dollar. And then, oh, by the way, they actually start to float at pretty wide spreads. Um, some are off of sulfur, plus two, three hundred, some are off of the five year, the 10 year. And the market's been ignoring that floating rate aspect. Whereas you saw before, the bank loan market is only down 1.1%. Um, so that's these type of disconnects that we're looking for. Um, and so we've been adding selectively to some of my best ideas in the preferred market. I also have a few Canadian preferreds as well. I know this is a topic that's near and dear to many people in the room. A lot of these are floating as well. Uh, they'll start to float at higher rates. So we have a few of our best ideas in the Canadian preferred market as well. 
You touched on um, loans, and I think, Scott, you do uh, bank loans and the uh, leverage loans. Talk to me about that asset. Sure. So, you know, leverage loans are, are very similar to high yield bonds, the same type of risk, right? Credit risk, default risk. And I think in the loan market, the reason why this, those have held up well is because if you think about loans, the way I like to think about it is it's almost as pure play on credit as you can get in non-investment grade credit because there's really no duration component. These are three-month floating rate instruments. So that's part of the reason why they've done so well uh, year to date. I think when I look at the, f the, the pricing that's been happening, you've got loan prices now down in the low 90s. I think default rates at this juncture probably are moving higher. We're coming off a very low, low base. But if we think about all the self-help that was done post-COVID with all the injections of capital, there's not a lot of maturities coming due next year and even in 2023 or 2024 for the loan market. So the liquidity of these businesses, because if you think is, is in a good spot. So if you think about loans, they're sub-investment grade issuers. They don't necessarily have a lot of cash on their balance sheet to deal with maturity. So having that runway gives them more wiggle room from a capital perspective. So, you know, defaults will likely move higher, but there's plenty of liquidity. You know, there are idiosyncratic risks going on there. They're dealing with inflation and, and, and things like that, strong dollar. All of that stuff is happening in those markets. But when we look at the underlying valuation, 92 cents on the dollar, a you know spread to three year or yield to three year call that's now up near the eight nine percent level, that's a pretty good risk reward when we think about you know what other markets could do going forward. So that's an area that that we've been uh, positive on and, and and adding to a little bit over the last few months. When I looked at that chart, one thing I didn't see and a big asset is real estate. So is that bucketed in under, I don't know, MBSs or something? Uh, well, it's, um, it's grouped in equities, so we're, we are able to buy REITs. Uh, but we don't really have much uh, real estate income in there. We probably would put that into a separate line item in there. Um, uh, so those are two areas that we could definitely uh, 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 invest in. And we have a, a, a real estate income team in our group that sits right down the hall from me. So we're looking for our best ideas over there. Uh, REITs at this point, they were really looking attractive. That's spread cushion for I was telling you about. We really looked attractive two years ago for REITs. But now that spread cushion... I like to think about it as the cap rate less the 10-year yield is, um, is really um, below 25-year averages. So there's not as much value over there, even though the fundamentals are going to be fine. Their dividends are going to be fine. And the other area that I saw, I'm an old convertible bond trader, and I know you are too. So, uh, and I noticed it was also increasing of late. What's the motivation there? I manage uh, all the convertibles at Fidelity, uh, almost close to 10 years now. Uh, rated my first convertible 20 years ago. The convertible market is the last saloon in town. Um, it's been a shrinking market. It's usually, I think what's happening is that there will eventually be a new issue market. That's when we're ready and waiting to increase our exposure because 2020 convertibles were the best performing asset class. Many companies needed to shore up their balance sheet. I think this time around, unlike 2020, the CFOs, the, the, the economy was happening, you know, dribbling slowly, 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 and then eventually it happened very fast. I think it's taken time for companies to realize they need to shore up their balance sheet. The convertible market is going to be a source of really great alpha for this fund going forward. New ideas that come, 3 4% yield, great equity sensitivities. You're buying the bond and the stock at discounted prices. And you could see that actually flexing if we do get those opportunities that come to us. We're, uh, we're looking at a convertible market now as basically a busted market. A lot of growth companies trading at 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And we have some really good lottery cards in here with our credit analysis. This could be something that plays out over the cycle. Um, but we're looking, waiting for those new issues right now uh, for, for increasing that exposure. 
You know, it's interesting earlier, Adam, you talked about a transition, if you will, between inflation and, and a recession. And how did you structure that in the portfolio? Like, and maybe, Scott, that's up to in your uh, area overall. Inflation has been a concern, continues to be a current concern, but you're right, it's transitioning. So I'm more concerned about the past. Sure. So I think, and I, you know, tape being repetitive, but I think it's key to what we do and, and, and I can think shows you what we're doing it, um, that is consistent is going back to that income to the amount of duration and equity risk. If we can do that, doesn't matter if rates go up or down or the stock market moves up or down, we should be able to protect to the downside. So that's kind of how we think about it. We're not thinking about what exactly is going to happen in the markets, as Adam said, but it's can we continue to have that proper mix so that if these things do play out, we're protected. Okay, so we've got a minute left, and we've got to leave the audience with a, a, a final note, if you will. I'll leave that to you, Adam. What's your outlook? What, what are you most looking forward to? I, I, I got to say, I love waking up in the morning and looking at where the opportunities are. I mean, you look at that periodic table again, to, to know that this, this happens every single cycle. It's no different this time around. There are opportunities everywhere. And the way, like we were trying to explain to do well in multi-asset income is to find those areas where you're getting the coupon, collect that coupon, but really get that principal appreciation if the bad news that is, that's priced in doesn't take out because that's spread tightening or earnings rising or multiple expansions. So I feel like a kid in a candy store. I've, I've said that in the last time I spoke with you as well. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, this is a cycle. This is a full cycle fund uh, where the opportunities are coming from places we never expect, and that's what's getting me excited. And we have the team at Fidelity, Fidelity High Income and Alternatives Group, a little a division within Fidelity that's 100 billion dollars, 25 different analysts, uh, 30 year history um, of finding these opportunities from a bottom up perspective. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.